Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We're so glad that you could join us this morning for worship. We just have a couple of things that we want to draw your attention to beyond. You may have noticed all of the flowers up here. We, we do apologize. There was a clerical error and we didn't get the, the flowers in memory up there. But we, the flowers over here to my right, to your left, are in memory of Eileen Williams by the family. So we thank you for those flowers and we do remember Eileen this morning. Over to my left, uh, to your right, we have two roses and that means there's new life. There are new babies that have been born uh, to the church. Uh, one is to uh, Ryan and Elizabeth Prickard for the birth of their son, Vaughn Isaiah Curtis Prickard. Did I say that right? Okay, listen, y'all need to like phonetically spell these things out. Those names are huge, right? Like my, I can speak Greek. I'm not so good at variations of English, okay? Uh, but we do congratulate the family, the Curtis family, uh, grandpa, grandma, great-grandfather. Right? We know that's a great, a great thing, and we're excited for you. We do praise God for that. Also, uh, Miss Tina Hitchcock, who, who attends in the second service, she gave birth to her son, Jacob Hitchcock, uh, last week. And so we celebrate with her as well this morning with the birth of these new lives. And we praise God for, for lives begun and for lives continued in glory this morning. Will you go with me to prayer in prayer to the Father as we turn our attention this morning to the Word? Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us, for your great love with which you've loved us. And God, I thank you for your many blessings that you continually pour out on us in so many ways. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the ways and the times that, that we fail to see your guiding hand and, and your love for us. Lord, I, I pray even more that you would forgive us for the times that we choose to do our own thing instead of following you, where we choose to take the glory and the praise rather than deferring it and deflecting it back to you. God, we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus, who came and lived his life and died on a cruel Roman cross for our sins. Lord, even as may we always remember wherever we are looking throughout scripture that it all points to you. That all reminds us of, of your great love, your great grace, and your holiness. And how through all that you've done, Lord, you have opened up avenues and ways for us to live in right relationship with you. Namely, through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Speak to us this morning through the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing with our series in the beginning as we look at the patriarch Abram and who becomes Abraham and, and all that, that God did in and through him and how that applies to us. This beginning of this, this relational uh, connection between the Lord, this uh, being of the peculiar people of God that we see beginning specifically with Abraham, Abram and then moving to Abraham, then to his sons and ultimately coming to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And I do believe that, that what we see is not just random happenstance, that it's not just that the Old Testament, well, that was for back then, and the New Testament, well, that's for now. I believe that the Old Testament has truth that we need to know for today. It shows patterns and, and ways of moving that help us to understand how God has historically moved to be able to interpret that here in the present. And we see that as we continue in Genesis chapter 12 this week. You know, last week, um, as I... As after I went home from the service, we were trying to do some laundry. Sunday tends, I don't know when your laundry day is, your house, is at your house, but Sunday seems to be the day where it finally stacks up to a point where we can no longer ignore it. 
And maybe, maybe you're better than that and like you plan your days out and so you know you're going to do it on that day so it doesn't stack up. For us, the indicator is the piles are so great that we can no longer close or open the doors. And so now it's time to move and wash all of the stuff. And so last week we, we started, uh, and, and when I say we, I mean Robin was doing the laundry. And um, so we were, we were doing the laundry and uh, we, we went to put it in the dryer and we realized that it, it, it wasn't working. You know, it was spinning, it was doing its thing and making its noise. But when, when, we, when we opened it and pulled it out, everything was still wet because all it was doing was spinning. Something had, had gone wrong within the dryer and it was no longer heating. And so Robin comes downstairs and says, hey, the, the dryer isn't working. You need to do something about that. I was like, by you mean, by you need to do something about that, you mean I need to call someone, right? And she said, well, I don't know. You know, you're a pretty smart guy, right? You, you got a doctorate. Surely you could fix the, figure out how to fix this yourself. You know, you, 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 you're all about reading and looking at things. So just watch a couple YouTubes. You can figure that out. And I'm like, I don't know, babe. Like, I don't have a good history with these kinds of things. Like, maybe we should just call someone. She's like, I think you could do it. So I let it sit for a week and we hang things up around the house. <laughs> and finally, there are enough things hanging around the house that I'm like, something has to be done. So I decide I'm going to take, try my hand at it. So I, I have some time off and I'm sitting at home and I pull up the first YouTube video and the YouTube guy was like, hey, this is easy. Easy fix, not a problem. Like this, this would cost you $200 if you went and had paid someone to do it. So all you need to do is this. He said, you just go and you, and he showed this really easy thing. You just go, you take your screwdriver, you pop the top off and there's everything. And you just fix it, put the top back on, you move on with life. And I'm like, so easy. I can do this. I can do this. This is not difficult. I got a screwdriver. I can look and see if something's burnt out, if a fuse is gone. You know, I don't want to spend $200 for someone to exchange a fuse, right? I don't want to be a good steward of my money. So I go up to the dryer, having watched, mind you, having watched only half of the YouTube video. So I go up to the top and I figure I'll just figure it out as I go. And I've got my screwdriver and, and, and I don't even know what else. I don't know what I thought I was going to do. But I get up to the top and right, he, he said, just you pop it up and then you lean the top to the back and, and there you are. You're good to go. So I, I get up there and I realize that my dryer is not the same brand. But he, the guy had said, it's not a big deal. They're pretty much all the same. I'm like, sweet. So I put the screwdrivers in and I pop up the top to pop it up. And rather than the top popping out, the front falls forward. And it wasn't just like the front falling forward. Like when you lifted the top up, everything was going up with it. When the top came forward, the door opened and all of the little sealy things came falling out. And I was like, this is bad. Like, any, like, where is this in the YouTube video? Right? This, the guy did not say that this was supposed to happen. This is not the way that this was supposed to play out. So I start looking at it and I'm like, you know what? This is not good. This is not good. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to put all this stuff back. I'm going to close it back up and then I'm going to call the guy and have him come fix it. So I start putting all the things back to place and I try to do all of the steps I did in reverse. And I realize that I can't pop the top up to get the front back in. Like this is not good. So I go downstairs and get some more tools. I'm like I'm going to fix this so that he comes back and what he sees is broken the way it was broken at first, not the way I broke it. Because I don't want him to think that I'm some fool that just tried to fix it himself, which of course we all know I was, but I don't want him to know that. 
So I go down, I get a bunch of tools, and I start taking out screws and bolts. And finally, I get the top off. And I'm like, sweet, now I'll put the face back. But then I put the face back, and I realize that when I put the face back, I can't put the screws back to, to keep the top down. And then what do I do? Like, so I call Robin. I was like, you lied to me. <laughs> you made me feel all good, like I was going to be able to fix this, and I can't. I got to call someone. She's like, okay, call someone. I was like, but it's broken. She's like, it was broken before. I was like, it's broken more. So I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to put the top back and see if I can. And so I'm bending things. And finally, I'm like, you know what? There is no hope for this situation. I'm going to have to bite the bullet. I'm going to have to call the guy. And he's going to have to come fix it. And so I call him. And I call the gentleman. And I'm like, sir, I need you to come fix my dryer. He's like, well, what's wrong? And I said, well, what was wrong or what's wrong now? He said, say no more. I'll be there by the end of the day. So he comes back and he, and he fixes the dryer. And he says, you know, if, if you called me, this probably would have cost you about $35. But the way it ended, it's like 100 and, 190 <laughs> If I'd have called him in the first place, it would have been less. Me trying to fix it myself ended up costing me more. And it's funny because this all happens. And then I start looking at, at Genesis chapter 12, the second half. And I realize that Abram did the same thing I did. And is this not our tendency? Now, maybe you're not as ignorant as I am to go try and fix your dryer on, on your own. I know some of you, so I know some of you are. But and some of you actually have the abilities. But all of us, to some degree, have these moments where we think, you know what? I can handle this. This isn't that, this isn't that big. And, and I think it's even, it's always been this way. It's always, historically, we could pull up numerous examples to show you examples where people decide that this isn't that big of a deal. I can fix this myself and they make it bigger. But I'm going to argue that in today's culture, in the information age, where we have all the information on all the things, all the time, everywhere we go, that it's a lot easier for us to assume that we know. To assume that we can take care of it ourselves. I always like to joke that we're in the age where you read two articles and look at a Facebook post and you call yourself an expert. Because that really is the world. You know? I'd love to talk to some of these doctors in here about self-diagnoses that come into the office. Because they, I saw it on a YouTube video. I'm, I'm dying. I've got malaria. No, you, no, you have, like, you ate bad pizza. But this is, this is a human trend. And, and really, if we want to be even more specific, does this not go back to the very beginning, to the, the fall itself? Where Adam and Eve have, are presented with some options regarded the, regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God has said, hey, don't, don't touch that. Let, let me handle that. The devil says, no, that's going to make you better. You can do it. And so this desire to handle it on our own, to do it ourselves in our own power, our own will, goes all the way back to the beginning. But my, my argument to us today is this, that, that that's not what we're called to do. Our call is to live in the promise of God, particularly as it, it, it involves the, the decision-making mechanisms that we have. And we are to seek God's guidance and to seek God's hand and to live in that calling and to allow Him to deliver on the promise in proper timing. We need to let the expert take care of what's going on in our lives. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. Genesis 12, starting in verse 10 and through verse 20, it says this. 
Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he went, was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So we have a problem. It's interesting, isn't it? That, that it's, we are just, we are in the, the, the actual same chapter. That the first thing that we see after Abram receiving the calling from God and moving into that calling and receiving the promise from God is Abram, no sooner does he receive the promise from God and the calling that he deviates from it. And, and this is the great temptation for us as humanity. There is always a temptation to take matters into our own hands. That temptation always stands there. It's always involved. No matter what's going on, we have to be aware that that temptation, that, that I, I can handle this. I can do this on my own. My ideas, and, and it comes up for a variety of reasons, doesn't it? Sometimes we, we, we do it because we're just sick of waiting on God. We're waiting on the Lord and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and waiting and waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting and God's not moving the way we want and the timing that we want. So we're like, you know what? I'm just going to take care of this myself. Or we find ourselves in, in a set of circumstances that, that aren't ideal and we assume that that means that we've deviated from the promise and so we've got to fix it so we can get ourselves back on track. But we haven't received or seen anything that indicates we should do something else. That is actually the truth that I think we see here with Abram. Now, there... I'll be honest, I'm, I'm acting and what we're looking at here is, is what's not said as much as what is said. But both of them play together to give us a clear picture of what's going on here. And I think that as we look at this text right now, that, that we can say with a fair amount of certainty that Abram's faith in God was smaller than his faith in himself at this moment. Abram's faith in God was smaller than his faith in himself at this moment. Verse 10 tells us that they've had, they've had a bad situation that's come about, right? It says that a, a famine was in the land. There's a famine in the land. And so Abram comes up with a plan. Abram decides that, that he and his fam are going to move to Egypt for a while to, to sit out the famine so that things come, and when things come back to normal, obviously they'll, they'll move back. But I think we've got to ask a few questions about this situation. We've got to ask a, a few questions about Abram and, and how he came about this decision that the best, the thing that was best for his interest and the thing that was best for him living in the plan of God and the thing that was best for the perseverance of the promise of God was for him to move to Egypt. We've got to ask, was Abram right to make the move in the first place? What was the basis of his decision? What, 
what, what made Abram come to the conclusion that I have to move to Egypt? The only thing that we see in the text is there's a famine in the land, right? The deciding factor based on what we see in the text is that things have gotten bad. That things have become questionable. He doesn't know how he's going to feed his people. He doesn't know how he, he's going to feed Lot and his, his people and his, his cattle. He doesn't know how he's going to take care of things. And so Abram is freaking out because things aren't going right. So Abram has to make a decision. And so Abram decides it's time to move down to Egypt. But what was the calling that God placed on Abram's life? If we go back to the beginning of verse 12 of chapter 12 we know that the calling was that abram was to go to the land that god would show him right that that's the only instructions we have to this point hey abram i'm going to show you you're going to go to a land that's that i'm going to show you that's that's away from your father's house that's away from your people and and you're going to go and take your your wife sarah you're going to go to this land that i'm going to show you Everything's been pretty ambiguous up to this point and all and now he's to the land and he worships God because God says, hey, this is the land. This is where you're supposed to be. God has not given Abram any indication that Abram is supposed to go anywhere else, has he? We don't see any indication. There's not there's not God going, oh, my goodness, there's a famine. Abram, you better find a way to find some food. What are you going to do? There's no indication that God led Abram to move. What led Abram to move is his concern for his current circumstances. Abram's current action has been dictated by his current reality. Which then leads us, leads us to the next question. Could not God not have provided for him where he was? I get that there's a famine. And it it may very well have been that God ultimately would have told him to go to Egypt, but we don't see that here. What we we know to this point in this chapter is that God has promised him, right? That, That he is going to bless Abram. That he's going to make him into a great nation. God kinda has a vested interest in Abram not starving to death. Right? God has a vested interest in in persevering Abram through the difficulties that he's facing. And and we know, granted, Abram doesn't have all of the the rest of Scripture like we do, but he has the stories of of Noah. God providing this, this ship to save all of humanity, preserving them through all of that time on the water. To me, as I look at this, we, we see a lack of trust that God would provide and that God would ultimately honor his promise. Further, why, why doesn't Abram ask God for guidance? We, we know that Abram understands the concept of worship because he's already built an altar. We don't, we don't see Abram. There's nothing that indicates that Abram has asked God question one about this. Nothing that says that Abram asks God what God wants him to do in the midst of this circumstance. If going to Egypt is in fact the right decision. We would think that that would be useful information as the author is putting this together. 
And the truth is that in most cases, when someone seeks the face of the Lord or seeks God's guidance, it is indicated in the text. We don't see Abram seeking God's guidance. And what we do see, though, is this, that Abram, his course of action absolutely provides a pattern for subsequent generations to follow. When famine hits the land during the times of Abram's grandson, Jacob, he sends his boys to get food in Egypt and ultimately migrates there. You know the difference between Jacob and Abram is? What the difference between Jacob and Abram is, though? That God actually specifically instructs Jacob to not be afraid and to go down to Egypt. There's a deviation. There's a variation between the two passages. Abram, there's just a famine, so Abram up and goes. Jacob, there's a famine, he sends some boys to check it out, and God tells him, hey, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. We don't know, and and I can't say conclusively that Abram was wrong, but we can say with all certainty that things do not go right. That as soon as Abram makes makes his determination on what he's going to do, as soon as he takes it, into his own hands, things begin to go south. Everything we see in these verses demonstrate that Abram is putting his own plans into motion, that he is taking control of the situation. And I think we have to ask ourselves, as we face the various situations and struggles of our lives, do we trust God? Do do we really trust God in the midst of the struggles of life? Are are we willing to sit in the struggle as we wait for God to move? As the struggle approaches and, and it blossoms, are we asking God for his guidance? Are we seeking his face? And sometimes maybe we do. But a lot of times... And I'll speak for myself. A lot of times in my own life, I try looking, I start looking for a quick fix. I want to get things, I, I, want, I want things resolved as quickly and efficiently as possible. I want to clean up the mess so I can move on with my life. I, I want to move through the difficulty so I can experience the glory of the blessing. But our faith is developed in the midst of the struggle. Our our faith draws us closer to the Lord when we allow it to work in our hearts and lives. Abram's faith in God was smaller than his faith in himself. Further, I think that we can see and say pretty conclusively that Abram's faith in God is smaller than his fear of Pharaoh. Abram's faith in God is smaller than his fear in Pharaoh. Know what happens. So they, there's a famine, so they, they make their way to, to Egypt because the famine's severe. And it says there in verse 11 that as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, so I will be treated well for your sake. And my life will be spared because of you. Abraham has some pretty valid and serious concerns about how the Egyptians will respond to Sarai. 
So he further takes matters into his own hands and develops a plan not only to get the resources in Egypt, but to make sure that that he doesn't lose his life while he's there. To save himself and bring about his own blessing. Did you notice that? That Abram's plan, like, come on, guys, like gentlemen with wives. How is your wife going to respond when you walk into a place you're like, hey, just pretend you're my sister so that I don't die and so they treat me well. Like, I just know that with Robin, that conversation is not going to go well right? You do realize that Abram essentially sells Sarai to Pharaoh for a few goats and camels and some servants. Like, I want to know how that relationship developed after she got back home, right? Jumping ahead a little bit, but, but that cannot have gone well. Abram says, hey, let me sell you down the river to save me. What's he afraid of? He's afraid that they will kill him and take her for themselves. And in all truth, in all actuality, kind of a valid concern. There was a pattern. And, And as a matter of fact, if we look at what happens, what happens when they get into the land? They take notice that she's a beautiful woman. They tell Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, hey, go get her for me. There's indication that his concern was, was somewhat reasonable. Can, can we take a moment to appreciate this as well, though? Sarai dies at 120 years old, right? She's in her lower to mid-70s right now, and she is still so gorgeous that Pharaoh sees her and says, I want that one. Like, I don't know what she was eating or drinking, but we need to find some of that mess. I want some of that for me. Can you imagine that? 70 plus years old. And this is still a concern. And Pharaoh himself talks about her beauty and takes her into her, his house. Verse 13 tells us that Abram takes things into his own, own hands, puts the plan into to action to protect himself. And he tells Sarai to tell, to tell the Egyptians that she's his sister. You know, we look at that and we think, well, that, that's, you can't be lying like that, Abram. But you know that the fact is it actually was kind of true. And we know it's kind of true because Abram doesn't learn his lesson this time and actually does this thing again later. Now, we're not going to look at that passage, but, but we know that Abram a second time has to go to another land. And he's like, hey, tell them you're my sister again. Like, at what point does Sarah say, dude, we are not doing this anymore? But that passage actually clearly indicates to us that, that she was in fact, and you can look it up, it's in Genesis twenty twelve that she was in fact Abram's half-sister. That they had the same father, but different mothers. Same father, but different mothers. Now that, that doesn't roll for us today, but that was not, remember, population base density is a lot lower. This was not uncommon for that time. So he's not lying. He's just using the convenient details of the story, the story for, for his own benefit. But again, then again, he is lying because half-truth is still a whole lie. And Abram presents a, a picture that is not completely accurate, that puts everybody at risk. And again, Abram not only hopes to avoid being killed, but to court Pharaoh's favor. It was customary... And that time to attempt to purchase the favor of the family head when one hoped to take a daughter or a sister in marriage. 
which makes you wonder, like, how did Abram think this was going to play out? Like, was he legitimately selling her to, to Pharaoh? Was, Pharaoh like, was Abram like, you know what, God, the only way I'm going to make this work, we're going to have to find another woman. This is not working. They, they're going to kill me. So let's just, let's just give her to him. There's lots of other ladies we can choose from. It doesn't say that specifically. But the indication of the text is that, that Abram has resigned himself to the fact that Pharaoh's going to take her. And I'm just going to have to move on and have to live with all of my, my cattle, my camels, my servants. Abram's faith in God is smaller than his fear of Pharaoh. And the warning for us here is this. Our fears must not dictate the object of our faith. Our fears must not dictate the object of our faith. Our faith is in fact meant to mitigate our fears. It's meant to dispel our fears. Does it not tell us in the New Testament that that we've not been given a spirit of fear, but a a spirit of power and self-discipline and of love? That self-discipline is the discipline we need to to live in the promise and the calling of God, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's difficult, even when it's dangerous, even when it hurts, when it's hard. If we are walking in the calling of God, Abram's calling was just, it was simple. It wasn't all this ministerial jargon. It was simply to go with God to where God would take him to do what God would want him to do. That, that is calling, folks. We can put whatever specifics that we are, we want on that, but, but is that not the calling we see in Jesus Christ that we follow him? We take up our cross and we offer our lives to him. It's going to require us to trust that he's big enough to handle what may come our way. And that our respect and our fear, our understanding of his greatness is big enough to handle the difficulties that we might face. What we see here in the life of Abram is often true in ours. We see that Abram mortgages the potential of the promise of God out of fear and for the favor of man. Abram mortgages the potential of the promise of God out of the fear of and for the favor of man. And if we look at it, the truth is on the front end, it, prov- it, it produces the desired results, doesn't it? Other than the fact that he lost his wife, but apparently he planned on that eventuality. They don't kill him and he gets rich. They don't kill him and he gets rich. Weren't those the two concerns? And then then we can say even further, because by the time he leaves, he's got all these things that they've averted and avoided the famine. Mission accomplished. But what is the promise again? The promise is that God is going to make him into a great nation, give him a great name, and that all the world is going to be blessed through him. That promise was given to him in conjunction and connection to his marriage to Sarai. Sarai is kind of vital to the promise. She's an essential part of the plan of God. Abram's put everything on the line. He's left the land of promise. He's wandered away from where it was that God called him to go in the first place. He's essentially offered his wife an essential part of the production of the promise to Pharaoh. And all of the gains that he has earned are on the back of half-truths 
which if and when they come to light, will put him at greater risk. And we need to notice that these are not accidental steps that Abram's taken. He does this intentionally. Abram knows exactly what he's doing, and he's got a pretty good idea on how it's going to come about. And what's bad about this is Abram, again, as we look at the, as we consider the coming patriarchs that will come later, Abram sets a precedent that his family then follows. Think about it. We rail on Esau. We rail on Esau because Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup, right? I'm starving. Give me some of the soup. Well, I can't do anything for you, so what does he do? Hey, you take the birthright. What good is it to me if I'm dead? And give me the soup. Esau sells his birthright, abandons his birthright because he's hungry. Why again did Abram abandon the promised land? Because he was hungry. Further, we see that, that Jacob is often, we, we rail on Jacob because he schemes to get the blessing he thinks he deserves from God. And we rail on Isaac because Isaac refuses to do what God has told him to do and give the blessing to Jacob. Isaac ignores God's instructions and instead opts to do what he thinks is best by maintaining the cultural norm. Just worked for dad. Jacob schemes his way with his mother's help into getting both the birthright and the blessing that God had promised. And Isaac had refused him, but God had promised it to him. Isaac says, Jacob says, you know what? This isn't working in the way that I think it should. So I'm just going to take it into my own hands. And in all of these situations, what ends up happening? When they take it into their own hands, they make a greater mess of things. You'd think at some point we would learn that we need to trust God. Now, don't, don't mistake me. I'm not saying that this means that we don't have any responsibility in this. We should actively be seeking God's face. And particularly those of us that now have the word of God should be seeking the, the, the leading of the Lord through the truth of his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But do we? Do we? Do we give God the option for us to, to stay in the struggle? as long as God would have us be there? Or do we simply go to the Lord and ask him to relieve the struggle, to remove it from us, to move us on? Remember the words of Paul. Paul said, hey, I, I prayed three times. And his point by saying three times isn't just that he prayed three times. He's saying, I prayed about this over and over and over again, asking God to remove this thing that was causing me discomfort and dissatisfaction. And, and God came back to me and said, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, then you are strong. My, God's strength moves and works in us in the midst of our weakness. We need to trust God. We need to understand that our actions and our attitudes will inform and influence those that come behind us. And again, we see the end result of Abram's work is that it makes a mess of things. Taking matters into our own hands, more often than not, results in us making a mess. Abram's plan, as it continues to play out, creates a less than ideal situation for all those involved. In verse 15, we see that Abram finds himself without a wife. Again, an essential piece of the promise. 
And, and, and so there's no ambiguity. Pharaoh, Pharaoh notes his intent, doesn't he? Pharaoh is very clear. I, I intended to take her for my wife. I wasn't giving her back. Abram, how does Abram, when, when Pharaoh finally does come and claim Sarai, like, isn't that the ideal time to say, hold up, we haven't been completely honest here. Where, where is he going with this? Abram never sees fit to step in and clarify the gravity of the situation. Even after, and we can see that even after Pharaoh's whole household gets sick, that it's ultimately through some other means that Pharaoh figures out what's really going on. It's not through Abram. Abram is more than willing to let Pharaoh's family die of whatever strain of flu they're getting than to come and clarify and make it better through the hand of God. The text tells us in verse 17 that God inflicts Pharaoh's house with a serious disease. How sick were they and for how long before they discerned what was going on and how did they figure it out? We don't know, but we know this, that Pharaoh does figure it out. And once Pharaoh figures out the reality of what's going on, he is livid. There's no indication that the famine is over at this point in time. In fact, Genesis 13 would seem to indicate due to the issue between Lot, the new issue between Lot and Abram, which they didn't have before they made their way into Egypt, that the land is still struggling to produce. You know, we have a part to play in the plan of God, but it must always be under the grace and guidance of the Lord. Abram's responsibility was to continue walking in the calling of God. God had promised to bring about blessing. Abram's first move should have been to turn to God for assistance and to follow his lead. Many of life's messes are of our own making. Sure, some things, some things are enforced upon us, but, but if we're honest, a great many times, the struggles that we end up facing, we play a part in stirring that pot. Our experience of the blessing of God is not dependent on our faith in ourselves or the merit of our own actions, but on the grace of God. We need to trust that the God who has called us will sustain us. And that through his power and his plan, he will bring about his purposes in our lives. If we look at Ephesians 5, it tells us as much. Ephesians 5. Uh, excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That there's an important factor there, that God does bring about our salvation. And we'd be tempted to think that that's just about our spiritual salvation. But all salvation comes from God. And we see that in the fact that God tells us that he has created works. He has created the path in which we are to live. Do we trust God enough with our lives? Do we trust that that, that spiritual salvation will ultimately live to lead to the life that we are supposed to live in the here and now? God's work in our lives is not rooted in any merit or action on our own part, but in his grace. 
We need to lean into that and trust him to move according to his plans. But there's hope, and even in the midst of Abram's mistake, missteps and our own, even in our failures, God is faithful. Even in our failures, God is faithful. Abram mucks it all up, but still ends up leaving Egypt better off than when he arrived. Note in verse 20 that Pharaoh doesn't ask for a refund when he returns Sarai. He sends Abram off with all he had. I'd be wanting my stuff back, right? Like, I, I've, I've paid you off for, for this woman. Like, I want a refund with some interest. You put my family at risk. You put my kingdom at risk. But through the grace of God, Pharaoh says, you know what? Just take it all and go. God utilizes Abram's mistake to bring about a piece of the promise. While we may not always find ourselves ahead of the game in the same way Abram did, God continually provides paths to redemption within our failures. A big key for us in all of this is learning from the experience and not perpetuating the pattern. Unfortunately for Abram, and often for us, it takes a few more rotations before he learns the lesson. You know, Abram didn't invent the process of going his own way. But he does present the first continuous picture of God working to bring him back. That's the lesson for us to learn here today. That we can't take it into our own hands and, and assume we're going to be able to, to force God to do what we want in our time and our way. That the more we try to insert ourselves into the situation and enforce our own will and our own plan, the more of a likelihood that we are going to screw it up. We need to trust God. We need to be willing to listen for his voice. We need to seek the, the, the path that he would have us to follow. We need to seek his help in keeping things on the rails and online. There are times where our know-how and can-do attitude brings about great results. But if I've learned anything from my recent experiences with our dryer, it's this. That sometimes we need to can-don't. And the truth is, in my own life, the dryer isn't the first time when I've broken something I was attempting to fix and had to make the call of shame to rely on someone else to come and clean up the mess I made. And honestly, it probably won't be the last either. We struggle to admit our need for assistance. We struggle at times to trust others to come and help us. We struggle to admit our need for others and for God. Particularly when it comes to walking in the light of the Lord and in His love and grace, we should be humble enough to admit that the God of the universe is an essential ally in any and all situations. Whether we've made a mess of it or it was made for us, we must learn to rest in the grip of His gracious hands. And we must trust that though we falter, He will be faithful. And that in his plan, for his purposes, he will bring about his promise. And that the grace of it all is that we get to partner in his work in the here and now, knowing that what he is doing is for his glory and our good, even if it may feel difficult in the now. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for your calling. I thank you for the knowledge that Whatever we may be facing today, God, that you are in fact there. 
And though we may not see your hand moving, you are in fact moving and you do have a plan and a purpose that nothing is wasted. God, wherever we find ourselves today, may we humbly offer ourselves to you and trust that you will lead us where we need to go. In Jesus' name, amen.